Okay, let's begin. Last night I was exploring with you what are known as the vipalasas, the distortions of perception, the way that we can misinterpret and almost deliberately misinterpret what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch. Remember the four things that I spoke about last night, just to remind you to see the changeless and the changing. You know, to, in other words, perceive permanence in impermanence. To perceive pleasure in that which is actually pain, in what is actually dukkha, using the most general sense of dukkha covering all of our um, all of our contacts with the world which are unsatisfactory. To perceive self where there is not self. And finally to perceive the, the lovely, sorry, perceive the unlovely as lovely, the beautiful, the unbeautiful as beautiful. These are the four distortions of perceptions. Remember what I said last night? It was basically from the Pali to take up something, twist it around and throw it down. You know, to literally distort what we're seeing, what we're hearing. Now, it's a much longer story, which we haven't got time to go into even in this week, but you know, out of this we create this notion of a self. We create, out of these distortions, founded on ignorance, founded on confusion, um, we create the notion of a self. And that self has to find a place in the world, has to find you know, some way of being in the world. It has to seek identity. It has to seek that which props it up, and actually dismiss and get rid of that which is a danger to it. So a lot of our life is spent with this sense of self, searching around for those conditions which will support our sense of self, including others, and that which won't. This becomes hardened over the years. It becomes hardened into perhaps what we might call our characters, you know, our preferences. I like this, I don't like that. I want this, I don't want that. I like you, I don't like you. You know, all of this is the ways that we divide up the world in order to find our place in it. Much of it is understandable. You know, probably some of it, as I was indicating to a group the previous week, is probably evolutionary. You know, to survive as we did... You know, in hostile environments, it was quite necessary to divide up the world, that which is threatening, to try and avoid it, and that which is pleasing, and that which supports my, and sustains me in the world, to, to try and get hold of more of it. But unfortunately, what happens is, you know, evolution, whilst of a good thing in terms of the evolutionary mechanisms, when we get into so-called civilized societies, um, they don't necessarily work terribly well. Um, so we're looking at sometimes outmoded ways of being which supported very primitive states and ways of moving around the world which have now become, in a sense, fossilised into our, into our behaviours. So in many ways what I'm trying to say to you, this is completely understandable, what's going on. It also makes it, and I think highlights for us, why so much of what we're trying to deal with is so difficult. 
even for practitioners of many, many, many years, they still find themselves falling into similar traps. Yeah, because these things are buried but so deeply, so deeply within us. Yeah, so I'm really trying to say this to you to say not to discourage you, but to, to say it's perfectly okay. You know, um, our behaviour is understandable. What we do is often quite understandable. We operate from this ground base of confusion. We operate from this ground base of ignorance, and therefore we stumble around um, trying to find our best way in the world. And I won't go into all the things I spoke about last night again. But it's kind of trying to find a link between what I want to talk about this evening, which is, in some senses, beginning again to get a little clearer about the problem and then to see how there's a possibility of dissolving, in a sense, the problems. Here's a quote from the, the Buddha out of one of the early texts. Watch your thoughts, for they become words. Choose your words, for they become actions. Understand your actions, for they become habits. Study your habits, for they become your character. Develop your character, for it becomes the shape of your life. Now this is a phrase the Buddha uses many, many times throughout the early text, that what we do, what we think, and we do it with any regularity, that becomes the shape or the definition of the way that we live in this world. You know, so if our thoughts are predominantly negative, they are driven from this base of ignorance, supported by often greed and aversion, and all of the kind of almost hereditary tree that grows out of these three things, then no wonder we behave often in the ways that we do. There is another little tree that the Buddha gives in a sense of trying to define actually what goes on in our unawakened cognitive processes when we contact the world. He says, you know, from contact comes feeling, feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neither. You know? And what we feel, we perceive. What we perceive, we think about. What we think about, I'm going to use a technical word, we proliferate. What we proliferate becomes the shape of our mind. What is the shape of our mind becomes the shape of our lives and almost our destiny. So I think you can see there's quite a, quite a chain there. So we've got contact, feeling, perception, thinking, proliferation, finally ending up with the shape of your life. So I think you can probably see it's quite, uh, it's quite useful to start examining what our thought processes are, what our habits are, what our proclivities in this world leaders to constantly repeat. Uh, something I've often said in this room, but I think it still holds good, is from the Buddha's point of view, everybody, absolutely everybody, has obsessive-compulsive disorder. <laughs> yeah. Not quite in the sort of clinically classifiable form, but we have this compulsion to repeat to keep on doing the same things again and again and again and again. 
notice again the way that you know, if we are repeating things, that will become, if you like, the grooves down which our thought patterns run and actually will eventually become our habitual responses to life or actually our habitual reactions to life. Because what the Buddha is suggesting that we can do is make a shift from reactivity to responsiveness. Yeah. When we're driven in the ways that we are, we are merely reacting to life. We're not responding to life. Now, before I pursue that any further, I just want to go, I want to go into, back into something I don't often talk about these days, which is going back into a little bit of Tibetan Buddhism, which was my early, early training. Um, and I spent many years training in, in forms of Tibetan Buddhism. But in one of my first encounters at the tender age of about 17 or 18, when I first encountered this stuff, I was studying in Dharamsala, and the Tibetans use the diagram to talk about rebirth and the chain of dependent arising, which I'm not going to go into. And they have a nice little illustration in the middle of this thing called the Wheel of Life, which is actually the Wheel of Becoming. Probably most of you have seen it, or many of you have seen something like this. It's held... This wheel is held by this demonic-looking character called Yama, who represents the god of death. So it keeps the whole cycle going. And the cycle, in its, in its, the wheel in its centre, at its hub, has a cock, a pig, and a snake. And they're all actually uh, usually biting each other's tails here. And the cock and the pig and the snake represent greed, aversion, and delusion, with the, with the pig representing delusion, and the cock and the snake represented greed and aversion. Yeah. Now, a more authentic versions actually see the, the, the cock and the, uh, the snake issuing forth from the mouth of the pig. Yeah. Almost like he's sort of spewing them up. So that's the centre. So that's what keeps me. You know, death keeps us going. And right at what the centre of this wheel of becoming is greed, aversion and delusion. And then you have these six realms of existence. Now, most traditional cultures take six realms of existence to be literally where one is reborn. There are many, many other interpretations of it as well. But um, the one that I first encountered was the kind of idol, literal idea. And it's got these six segments with different characters in these segments. And, and right at the top, you have these figures which are usually, usually translated as gods. It's not a terribly good translation, but they're called devas. And the Deva realm is like the highest possible realm you can get to. It's higher than the human realm, supposedly. And the Devas represent everything um, you could possibly want. Long lives, incalculably long lives. Um, They have everything they want. You know, good food, wonderfully comfortable lives. They uh, They don't do good, they don't do bad. They're just enjoying the fruits um, Tibetans believe they're enjoying the fruits of previous lives here. And this is why they get to the Deva realm. So this is kind of the pinnacle um, here. But unfortunately, of course, once you've reached the pinnacle, the only way is down. <laughs> you know? And because they don't actually do any good or any bad, they don't actually accumulate any further merit to remain in that position. So they drop out of existence. And in some of the ancient texts, it's very funny because they have this little description that says, when they're about to take rebirth in a lower realm, they start to smell. (laughs) And nobody wants to speak to them. (laughs) I have a feeling this is a bit like bankers. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. They kind of drop out of the godlike existence. <laughs> okay, so we have this, this higher realm. It's usually flanked, and sometimes it's reversed, but it doesn't really matter. It's usually flanked by the human realm, which I'll leave to one side for the moment, and a realm which is known as the realm of the Asuras, which is, again, it's one of these words in Pali and Sanskrit which define, defy translation properly. But they're kind of jealous gods. They're jealous about what the gods have got. Um, and they're fighting over a tree um, which has its roots, sorry, it has its fruits in the realm of the gods and its roots in the realm of the Asuras. Yeah, these are the jealous gods. And they're fighting to get the fruits which are actually in all of the godlike realm. So I, kind of, I always called these the upwardly mobile. <laughs> they're trying to get to the top. Uh, they want to get to where the gods are. Um, then we have the lower realms. I'll leave, the, as I say, the human realm to the side for a minute. And then we have the lower realms. And the lower realms we have, well, one that we recognize, which is the animal realm. It's the only two we recognize out of probably this whole thing, is the animal realm and the human realm. The animal realm, um, in the early Buddhist thought, is a realm of blind instinct, but of tremendous suffering because of persecution. Yeah, you've only got to think, even to these days, you know, the sheer quantity of animals that are killed each day for food, not just by humans, but by other animals. Um, the German philosopher Schopenhauer once said, he said, I look around the world and I see everything eating everything. <laughs> you know, so this is a realm of basically subservience to blind instinct and tremendous persecution within this realm. Then there's a, a hell realm. You know, and the hell realm is quite an interesting one because Yama, the god of death, presides over the hell realm. Um, but you know, he doesn't judge people. He holds up a mirror. And dependent on what people see in the mirror is their fates, is their punishments. You know, people judge themselves by what they see in the mirror. And actually, in, in Tibetan painting, this gets really outlandish. So somebody, for lying, is having his, uh, his tongue ploughed. <laughs> You see in these illustrations, and people are being sawn in half and all sorts of things <laughs> here. Then there's another realm. I, I quite like these little characters. They're called, in Pali, they're called petas, or actually in, in Preta, in Sanskrit. And these are hungry ghosts. And they have this insatiable appetite and huge bellies. But unfortunately, they have little tiny pinhole mouths and little scraggy necks. So each little bit of food and drink they get in causes them immense pain. <laughs> oh, you're feeling sorry for them now. <laughs> um, so these, hung these hungry ghosts are, are one of these other unfortunate realms. And then finally, I just wanted to leave that one out right till the last, is the human realm. Now, the human realm is defined in... In, certainly in early Tibetan Buddhism, it was defined as a realm of possibility. It was the possibility for developing wholesome states based on the opposites of greed, aversion, and delusion. It became the possibility of the development, for example, of kindness, of compassion, of, I'll use the words used in Tibetan Buddhism often when they're translating it, the possibility of wisdom the possibility of real understanding, penetrating insight into the way things are. This was the definition of the human realm. 
Now, I was a little clever clogs in these days, because I kind of figured out that actually if you take out the literality of this, of these being realms that you're really, really, really reborn into, which I didn't kind of buy into even right at the start, uh, then I said, actually, what these are are psychological states, aren't they? Yeah, these are psychological types. And I said to the teacher who I was studying with at the time, said, am I right? You know, are these psychological types? You've got the, kind of the, the person at the top who feels they've got everything. You know, the person giving, literally giving themselves hell. Um, the person who's driven by blind instinct. Uh, the person who is you know, very animalistic. The person whose whole being is dominated by craving that can never be satisfied because they can never get enough. And those aspiring to be the top and so on and so forth. I said this to this particular teacher, is, is this the way you see them? Are these psychological types? And he looked at me with absolute disgust and said, no, that's a picture of you on one day. <laughs> Because this is actually what we're whirling around. If there is a notion of rebirth here, and we don't have to take this literally, I don't know whether anybody wants to take it literally, but we don't have to take it literally. This is actually how we're reborn from moment to moment psychologically. But in a way, the next thing he said, I could make the title of this talk this evening, because he said to me then, he said, and the question you have to ask yourself is how often are you human in a day? Yeah, That's the question you've got to ask yourself. How often do you dwell in the human realm with the possibilities of you know, developing really wholesome states in this world? Now, interestingly, in these depictions, the figure of Mr. Gotama, the Buddha, stands outside of this whole wheel. He represents the person who's overcome the whole being chained to this sense of rebirth, which we don't have to take literally. We can take as literally as a psychological rebirth, being born moment to moment in these states here. The human realm, according to this, being human, the development of wholesome states, the development of wholesome characteristics in our lives, is considered to be that realm of the possibility where we can launch ourselves out of this realm. It's very difficult when we're caught in the blind instincts, you know, basically of satisfying our, our basic wants, our basic needs, you know, our needs for procreation, our needs for satisfying instincts. You know, it's very difficult to break out of that. Those who are in, let's, let's take the hellish states, in deep states of psychological distress and turmoil. It's very difficult to break out. Um, it's really difficult to see any other possibilities when one is in those states, if you're in a state of deep depression, everything is coloured by it, everything is touched by it. When you're caught up in the grip of intense craving for something, which is recommended by those poor little characters you went, oh, about. <laughs> you know, those, those hungry ghosts. When you're caught up in the intense grip of craving and that's all you want to do is satisfy that craving, there's very little way that we can see possibilities. And actually, if we, even if we take the, the kind of highest realm as represented in these six realms here, if we take the realm of the gods, then the realm of the gods is actually a realm of apathy. You know, I don't do anything particularly. I don't do anything bad particularly. I don't do anything good particularly. I'm just kind of living off the fruits of, of you know, what I've accumulated. 
Yeah, and accumulated can be you know, through you know, kind of living in this world and accumulating all the material wealth that this world sometimes has to offer to certain individuals. And those who, of course, are looking at the top you know, with their minds bent on only reaching the top, reaching what those gods have got, then it's very difficult again to do that. Now, standing outside the wheel, the Buddha has achieved something which he says is possible for everybody. Yeah. In later forms of Buddhism, it becomes seemingly more and more and more difficult to achieve this state. It's interesting. Um, whereas in the very earliest strata of Buddhist texts, the ones basically, apart from this little bit, I've been teaching from, the Buddha considers it to be a real possibility for everybody. He says, this is not awakening in a future life, this is awakening here and now, right now. You know, we all have that possibility of doing it. And if you like um, what he teaches, this big word that you often hear banded around, you know, it's even got into the Oxford English Dictionary quite early on, this word nirvana. Yeah, the Pali word is nirvana, but most people know the word nirvana. I mean, what did the West do? They turned it into a rock group. <laughs> Having said that, they turned the opposite, sangsara, into a perfume. <laughs> which, is the, which is the problem, uh, the going round and round in circles. But, seriously, the, the important point about this is nirvana is a verb form. It means to do something. Yeah. It means to bring an end to greed, aversion, and delusion. This is all nirvana means. Yeah, it's not a mystical state. You know, too many people, I think, see it as a mystical state and therefore beyond, I don't know, the realization of you know, poor little mortals like you and I. Um, but it's only those you know, figures like the, the Buddhas and in later Buddhism what's called the Bodhisattvas and all these people who can actually do this who can reach so-called nirvana. But it isn't a reaching of anything. There is a nirvanaing which happens in our lives, and it happens on quite mundane levels, actually. When we bring an end to habitual responses, habitual reactions to things. When we bring an end to habit... You know, habit is grooves around down which the mind runs again and again and again, and the more and more you repeat, the deeper and deeper they become, if you like. I mean, strictly speaking, of course, these are neural pathways that we set up in the brain down which our thought processes run again and again and again. Start to do something, repeat it, it becomes easier and easier and easier to do something here. Yeah. There's no blame, there's no shame in this. This is just what happens. Yeah. When we take off from easy options, the easy roads, out of our confusion, out of our difficulties, out of all the things I've spoken about over the last couple of nights, we create a world of entrapment. Now, as I said over these last couple of nights, I you know, hope I haven't sent you to bed too pessimistic about it all. Yeah, because actually, this is the diagnostic stuff, and I could go into a lot, lot more but I'm not going to, certainly not tonight anyway. Because I want to give you that real sense of possibility that the Buddha opens up to us, that it's possible for you and I to break those habits. It's possible to do it now. 
Nobody is saying it's going to be easy, though. He certainly never says it's going to be easy. He says it requires effort. It requires energy in order to do this. It's interesting that um, in Pali and Sanskrit, the, the word that's used for energy is a word which is, is, is called virya. It actually has the same root as the English word virile, you know, which has changed its meaning over the centuries. And this was often applied to somebody who was warrior-like, heroic, you know, not the kind of connotations it often has these days, somebody who's virile. So somebody who had energy, somebody who was prepared to do this, prepared to start to really take a close look at their lives and starting to break habit in their lives, this was a heroic action. This required, made heroines and heroes out of ordinary people if they attempted to do this. The very word nirvana, if I take it to its etymological root, actually means to unbind. Yeah? So the image of one is being bound. Yeah, it has different layers of meaning. To unbind from habitual patterns. Yeah? This is what we're actually engaged in. We have to take a close look, though, at those habitual patterns. We have to see them clearly. We have to know them for what they are. This means facing up, you know, putting it in quite crude terms, to our stuff. Yeah. This is why I say it's not easy, but it is possible for all of us to do this. Now, let's take nirvana out of this big sense of you know, almost the blinding light on the road to Damascus stuff. You know, with the Big Bang Theory, where you get it all in one go. Um, the path, I think, as the Buddha lays it out in the early texts here, and which I think it makes it very possible for all of us in this room to be able to do this, is a path of what I call incremental nirvanaing. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful, isn't it? But it somehow works. So a, it's a verb form, so it's not reaching nirvana; it's nirvanaing. Yeah. Uh, incremental because we do it in small goes. Yeah, we have little nirvanas in our experience. And when do we experience those little nirvanas? We experience it when we break habit forms. If you've ever had an entrenched habit, such as smoking or drinking or something like that, just one of the kind of mundane habits that people often pick up, then... You know, the tremendous feeling of release that people get when they're no longer bound to something that they sometimes don't even like anymore. They don't even want to do it anymore. When we break habits such as acquisition, constantly buying, constantly acquiring, constantly trying to establish ourselves in the world, as I was talking about last night, by what we have. I was saying to a group earlier on, there are two verbs in the English language, and in fact they're all languages, um, that actually get conflated. They get actually put together. And these are the verbs to have and to be. Yeah, So much so that often in the Western world we equate who we are with what we have. Yeah, This is my sense of identity, what I have, what I possess. You know, it shows my status in the world, my sense of identity, who I am. 
It displays it to the world. And this is coming back to a fundamental sense of being by breaking that sense of, of acquisition, habit, trying to say who you are and make statements about who you are in the world by having. Yeah. Now this is a habit like anything else. But then there are the habits such as the habits of getting angry. Yeah. There's the habit of being irritable. Um, there's a habit of vastly overinflating things which don't need overinflating at all. Yeah. Basically, we take any small item in our experience and make it into a disaster zone. <laughs> yeah. The human mind can do this. Yeah. The human mind is the perfect magnifying glass upon which we put every little element of experience. And we can turn something quite innocuous to being a real cause of contention. Yeah? I think this is called human relationships. <laughs> so we, we take these small elements, but it becomes habitual. I hope you're getting the picture now. This wheel, by the way, that I spoke about, represents a wheel of becoming. We're always becoming something in our lives. You know, always wanting to become something. We are kind of on the treadmill of wanting to be something in our lives. The idea is to bring this wheel of becoming to an end. You know, this actually is the wheel of repetition, of habitually repeating things. It's, I don't know if you've ever reflected on your life and wondered why sometimes we appear to be, well, perhaps I will use the word suffering, in similar sorts of ways. Well, basically because we're doing similar sorts of things. And we keep on repeating them. Habits, I mean, they're a wonderfully interesting, uh, interesting item, aren't they? Habits is you know, something we get involved in. We do them again and again and again, even though they prove not to give us what we want. You know, just out of the sheer disbelief that it's not working, I'll give it one more go. Yeah, just try it again. Yeah, just one more drink. I'm sure it'll work this time. <laughs> yeah. So we take these things and we do them again and again and again and again. And you know, as I say, the message is that we can actually begin to break this cycle. Initially, you have to do it in small ways. We have to, in in, in these small ways, even in meditation, we're beginning to stand close to our experience, beginning almost to touch it, to palpate it, to begin to touch it, to feel it, to feel its physiognomy, you know, to feel what the, you know, the physiognomy, the actual characteristics of these habits are. This is what we get a chance to do in meditation. This is what we get a chance to do in cultivating an insight into what is actually going on. I mean, Vipassana meditation, um, actually, really, there is really only one mantra for Vipassana meditation, insight meditation. What the hell's going on here? You know, that really is your mantra. <laughs> you know, because you want to actually discover what is actually happening. All too often we're caught up in projection, and actually this is one of the big problems sometimes with meditation. People get caught up in a projection about what they want to be going on. Not what is actually happening. Yeah. And this becomes habitual. 
We keep going out and searching for that which I want to happen. You know, we hear little things such as, you know, meditation is good for you. Meditation relaxes you. Well, actually, I've never found that one yet. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, meditation does this, meditation does that. You know, meditation is about having a blank mind. We get all of these idealisms around what meditation is, none of which actually happen to be true at all. Um, when we sit, what we're beginning to do is move in close to our experience. One of the definitions of metta uh, that we you know, are obviously engaged in developing and inclining our minds towards in the practices now, one of the definitions is the ability to stand close to experience without ill will. Yeah. In other words, whatever is there. It's not about having an ideal about what I want. Actually, that's a lot of ordinary life, having ideals about what I actually want. They're called fantasies. Those distortions of perception that I spoke about last night, actually another way of putting it would be, actually these are fantasies. The fantasy of wanting permanence in an impermanent world, the fantasy of wanting a self, when actually the self is a process. It's nothing else. That's really, really good news. I didn't explore it with you last night, but actually not being a fixed sense of self. I touched on it very slightly, but it's really good news. It means we can engage in this process. If we were fixed, there would be no point to it whatsoever. I might be able to tinker around with the peripheries, but nothing fundamental could change, and certainly not the unbinding that the Buddha speaks about in regard to nirvana in unbinding ourselves from habitual, reactive patterns. So what we have in getting this close look, when we begin to have a close look at what's going on, is patterns within patterns within patterns. And the way that we bring those patterns to each moment of our experience. And so that we end up, basically, keep on reacting. So the movement that the Buddha is speaking about is the movement from reactivity to responsiveness. To put it into an ethical domain, which often doesn't get spoken about, it actually takes it from reactiveness to responsiveness to responsibility. The ability to respond ethically in the situations that arise for us. The, The ability to be able, for example, to respond to the call of those precepts that, we spoke, that I spoke about on the first evening. It's very interesting in those early texts, those precepts, by the way, uh, are actually referred to by the Buddha as being five great gifts to oneself. Yeah. It's a lovely way of thinking about it. They're not moral duties that are somehow heavily placed on you. You know, the... the The training in harmlessness, the training in taking what is not offered, and all of these precepts are gifts to yourself. He basically says somebody who follows these precepts sleeps easily. They don't have to carry stuff over that they're worrying about anymore. Now that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but I can see what is meant by that in the sense that we... We were not carrying lots of burdens of 
of the worst sense of responsibility of all the wrongs that I've done in this world. The Buddha's basic trajectory and what he's speaking about is one of being able to move through this world with less and less destruction. And I use that deliberately, that word, because we can engage in destructive behavior. We engage in destructive behavior, and much of what we explored over the first two nights were a little bit about how, what is the origin of that destructive behavior. Well, let's just again go back to last night. Well, destructive behavior has its origin sometimes in these distorted perceptions, you know, these fantasies that we live about how things are. He speaks about seeing things the way they are, and that includes us. That very, very much includes seeing us the way that we are. Where do we start? Where do we start this journey? We start from who we are, not from an ideal of who we would like to be. It's kind of showing up for your own story, for once. This is what meditation is about. Showing up on the cushion um, with your own story and to examine that story. The narratives that we live. And we inhabit narrative after narrative after narrative. The stories we tell ourselves. And we keep on telling ourselves. It's beginning to, in a sense, puncture the narratives. To puncture these stories that we tell ourselves about how bad our life was, how good it is in this respect, and how much I want that, and how little I want that. You know, it's actually to begin to puncture those narratives. The problems with narratives are, they, again, they seem to have a, a truth-saying nature to them. Um, a feminist novelist, who some of you might know, Jeanette Winderson, has this wonderful novel called The, the Passion in it. And it's a kind of magical realist story, and people are doing weird things like walking on water with webbed feet, and all sorts of stuff. But there's a little refrain that runs through it. I think it ought to actually be appended to every little story you tell yourself, which it goes, trust me, I'm telling you stories. Trust me, I'm telling you stories. These are what we inhabit. These are the kind of narratives that we inhabit. This is what we're beginning to puncture. We're beginning to see through, as if through a veil, we can somehow distinguish actually something which is much, much more real behind it. Yeah. We, get a, we get subtle glimpses of it. We get glimpses of it, I think, in those little breaking of small habits. Yeah. When we get that rush of freedom, when we get that sense I've unbound myself from a, a habit to which I was tied... The German language poet Rilke spoke in one of his Duino elegies about the habit that moved in and didn't leave. As if it was a guest that came in and didn't leave. And what we're doing, in a sense, is evicting this particular guest who's outstayed its welcome. Now, again, it's understandable. If we had more time, I'd go into it. It's very understandable why we build up these habits. It's all about self-protection. But in so-called trying to protect ourselves, what we actually end up doing is causing ourselves pain. I'm sure we've all seen that. When, For example, let's just take the world of human relationship, because this is the real world we all have to work within. 
Yeah, we have to live with it. Where one of your habits that just you just won't relinquish gets between you and close relationship with somebody. Yeah. The habit of being irritable about X, whatever it might be, which is really often quite unimportant. Yeah. Often very, very unimportant. We don't drop it and that actually becomes greater, the habit and the being bound to the habit because we think, yeah, here we are, we have this little store, don't we? Toys are us. Well, habits are us. <laughs> we think habits are us. Have you ever noticed, actually, when somebody challenges one of your habits, how defensive you get? Yeah. You don't go something like, you know, when somebody goes, well, you know, you've got that rather irritating habit. You don't go, well, I can let it go. It's not really anything important. <laughs> 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 <You know? laughs> That's not what we do. We go, what do you mean? <laughs> That's just the way I am. <laughs> Whenever you hear yourself after those phrases like that, it means it says, I'm not going to change. <laughs> yeah. Now, I, I'm obviously trying to create some humour out of this, but this actually is seriously inhibits our genuine relationships with others. Here's one big habit um, that we refer to again and again, and perhaps I think I will explore it in more detail in the next talk, which is me. Really big habit, that one. <laughs> you know, it comes to the forefront of everything. You know, even if there's a little crack, I'll get me in. <laughs> Actually, there's a wonderful cartoon I came across many, many years ago. I've often talked about this, but it, I, I still laugh at it, even when I see it now. It was a wonderful cartoon. It was, it was a man and woman sitting over a table. And there is obviously a dinner table because there's a bottle of wine in the middle. And he's leaning across the table, and, on, and there's lots and lots of little squares. And above his head, and the bubble that comes up above his head, for about 12 squares, it goes, me, 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 <laughs> me. And eventually, he obviously finishes what he's saying. He leans back. The, lady, the woman he's with leans across the table, and the bubble, uh, bubble appears above her head, and it goes, me. And he goes, <laughs> I think it says a lot about human relationships. <laughs> now, I don't want to appear cynical about this, but you know, when we start, when the me gets insinuated into everything, you know, when it gets play, placed in areas where we don't need it to be, we're actually involved again in a way of patterning ourselves, patterning our situations where I am dominant. I have to be at the forefront of this. Iris Murdoch talks about what she calls the great big fat restless ego that sits in front of you and obscures your vision. You you don't actually see the other. What you see is you in some way or another. Uh, And we go out looking for us. And we like mirrors as well, don't we? Mirrors, people to mirror back to us what we like, and of course if somebody doesn't mirror it back, well of course their opinion doesn't count anyway. (laughs) So what we have, and I want to kind of leave you with this idea, is this can all be broken. Now the Buddha's in a sense strategy for that, and meditation is one of them, behaviour is another, and certainly behaviour in terms of ethics is a big part of this, is starting, no matter how difficult it might be, 
to introduce into our lives elements such as metta. This is not an easy thing. You know, and you've probably found, even in these last two days, developing it towards yourself, day and a half. Developing it towards the benefactor, you know, this afternoon and just one sitting this evening. This is not an easy thing to do. You know, we don't automatically get the payoff, do we? And I said, you know, when I introduced the whole practice, actually forget the payoff at the moment. Forget about the feelings, because they don't automatically arise for everybody. For some people they might, as I, as I said you know, I can rejoice in the merit if it does arise for somebody. But for most of us, it doesn't arise immediately. We have to work at it. We have to work in a sense at generating that inclination of mind, actually redirecting our neural pathways, setting up new neural pathways. This is, this is actually what we're doing on the, kind of, on the neuroscience level. We're actually setting up more neural pathways, the wonderful thing is the discovery over these you know, last few years or so is that the brain is plastic and it can change. You know, so no matter how deep your pathways of habit are, we can change them. You know, this is one of the great discoveries of all the brain imaging science and the neuroscience that's gone on, that we realise this. <clears throat> I was speaking to a neuroscientist in the States, where I often teach, uh, somebody called Sarah Lazar, who does a lot of neuroimaging Particular, and particularly on meditators here. And lest you think that nothing is going on, she said even five minutes a day changes brain patterns. Yeah, it's that powerful. Yeah, she can't say exactly say how it's doing this or what exactly is going on at the moment, but it shows up on the neuroimaging changes, even if you're only doing it for that short a period a day. And... You know, most of us will say, well, of course, sitting for five minutes, we don't get anywhere. You know, nothing happens really in five minutes. It does. You know, I think it's worth bearing in that, mi- that in mind. I think the one interesting thing with this sort of recent interest of science in, in meditation and meditation procedures is it's actually showing some of it works. They don't know quite how. There's a lot of overstatement in it yet. But there is something going on which is really changing. And I think that can give us a lot of heart when sometimes we can be dispirited. Actually, my meditation hasn't changed, but I've been doing this for years and nothing's changed. My mind's still a mess. (laughs) Does this sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) You know, actually, we don't need necessarily to look at what's happening in the meditation. I'll probably say this again on the last day. Actually look at what's gone on in your life. See what's changed in your life. See if some of those patterns of reactions have changed. See if you get less wound up about things that you used to be much more wound up about. Most people often, when they do that little survey, often find they have actually had quite big changes. Where I do some work in Oxford... In the Mindfulness Centre in Oxford, um, it's actually embedded within the Department of Psychiatry. It's very interesting. I'll finish on this story because I want to leave you with some heart here. Um, one of the psychiatrists in, in the department um, decided to start doing mindfulness, which um, you know, he, he wasn't particularly attracted to initially, and he'd seen some of the research results that were coming out of the Mindfulness Centre. And so he decided he was going to do mindfulness meditation each day in half an hour, 40 minutes every day, which he did for about three months. And after three months, he said to his wife, he said, 
you know, this mindfulness meditation, he says, you know, I really don't think I'm getting anywhere at all. I'm just wasting 45 minutes a day. I think I'll give it up. Which said, please don't. (laughs) 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 So, let me just round this up. We're engaging in something difficult. Change is possible. You know, whether we look at it from this more contemporary point of view where I've been speaking a little bit about towards the end of this talk, or whether we go back to the traditional ways we look at it within Buddhism. What we do if we don't actually act in these ways of trying to, in some senses, break our habit patterns is we end up circling around in something like a six realms. You know, these are six realms of reactivity. Now, I think there's many, 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 many more that we engage in, that we actually inhabit in a day. Six is just a nice, convenient number that we can circle around in. I think we circle around in many, many realms in a day. But at the end of the day comes that question again. How often are you the possibility that you can become? How often are you what I would call realizing that possibility of being human. How often are you human in a day? And in the next talk, I'll explore a bit more about that, the kinds of positive uh, mental states that we can start to create to affect the and to deal with the more negative traits that arise in the mind. Now, tomorrow night, what we'll do is I'll... I'll give you the right to reply to all of this stuff. We'll have a question and answer session tomorrow night and then we'll pick up on the talks on on the next evening. Okay, thank you for your attention again. Thank you you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.